Okay. Coming up, to, coming up this week, you have a homework assignment due. So homework three is due on Friday. Quiz three will be available on Friday, which for this class will cover chapters four through eight, which we're done with, and chapter nine on the sun, which we just started on, and we'll be through, we should be through most, if not all of that, by, by Sunday, by Sunday, by Friday, I should say. Maybe we'll be through it all by Sunday, too, you know. Everybody can come back on Saturday for an extra lecture? No, 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 I don't see, okay, I don't see the enthusiasm for that, I guess not. Exam two is scheduled for the 3rd of October, covering chapter 3, 4 through 8, and 9. So we'll cover those three units, plus a little tiny bit of chapter 2 that we didn't cover. And then looking ahead, I have homework 4 due October the 12th. I haven't given it out yet. It's actually, it is, it is up on D2L. You could get it if you really want to jump ahead. But it's up there. I'll give you that out probably either, either Friday or on Monday. And then quiz 4 coming up for this class covers chapter 10. It's October the 12th. That one's actually in class. So that's when I actually do in class here. So you, don't, you won't have to worry about D2L on that. We'll take uh, 15 minutes at the end of class. Probably on the 12th if all goes well and I'm through everything I want to cover on it. And I'll give you that, that quiz. So that one for yours is actually in class. So you, only, you only get one time that time. But everybody will be here for lab anyway so we don't have to worry about it. Questions? No, no, no. All right. Picture of the day for today is Space Shuttle. Last flight of the Space Shuttle Endeavor. Not under its own power. Um, start flying on the piggybacked on a 747 there over Los Angeles. And on its way to, and what museum was it? The California Science Center. So going to land there at the Los Angeles airport and be actually towed through the streets of Los Angeles to the Science Center. Obviously you can't kind of land it at the Science Center. You need to be able to get it. Get it down at the airport, remove it from the 747, and then it will be towed through the streets to the Science Center where it will be on display. So if you want to go see a shuttle, now there's about four places you can go see one. And Los Angeles is one, New York is another, and there's two others. And I don't remember them off the top of my head. I don't know if it was Houston or um, uh, Florida or wherever the others are going to be. But there's, those are the only places they don't fly anymore. And they actually never could fly like this. I mean, shuttle could never fly like an airplane. It could glide through the air when it came back in, but it could never fly. So even if you had the engines running, you'd never be able to get the, the shuttle flying through the atmosphere like that. The only thing it could do was glide back down to Earth after being in orbit. You could set, set the rockets to get it to enter, enter the Earth's atmosphere at the proper angle, ride through the atmosphere, you heat shield to protect it as it came into the atmosphere, and then it could kind of glide and land like an airplane, but it couldn't actually fly. You had no way to control it once it was coming down. You could only kind of glide it into a, to a stop there. You had no way to do that. So what's going to be taking the place of it? So right now we don't have anything. So there's been talk about certain different types of spacecraft that will be taking its place in order to get people into or to and from the space station. Right now, we're sort of dependent on other countries. If we want to get someone to or from the space station, you're dependent on other countries. We have no way right now to launch humans into space. We still have technology that we're using that launches you know, different space probes, but nothing to actually get people into space at this point. There are a few things, again, that are being considered and worked on that may come up hopefully in the next couple of years. So last, last flight of the, of the space shuttle here on the back of a, seven, on the back of a 747 over Los Angeles. 
questions? Questions? No? No? We're ready to talk about the sun. Okay. Uh, not that one. This one. All right, on to the sun. So we're actually talking about some of the astronomical objects now. And I'd finished up here last time, giving you some of the basic properties of the sun. And I told you don't memorize them. You don't need to know. I'm not going to test you on the radius of the sun or the mass of the sun. It's sort of giving you some of the, some of the numbers. Interest, good ones to know. It doesn't hurt to know the temperature. That's not such a bad number to know, about 6,000 degrees. Not even that particular about the exact number, but about 5,800 degrees, 6,000 degrees for the surface temperature of the sun. The rotational periods are about a month, but it depends on where you are. But in terms of knowing that the mass is 2 times 10 to the 30th kilograms is really not something meaningful that you need to know. Knowing that the luminosity is something times 10 to the 26 watts, you don't really need to know those specific numbers. We'll use other things, we'll use the sun sort of as a comparison when we look at other stars. And everything else is compared to the sun, not with its mass in kilograms, but with its math, mass in solar masses. So this is essentially like we defined an astronomical unit was the distance from the Earth to the sun. Well, one solar mass is just the mass of the sun. So then we'd say another star might be two solar masses. It's twice as massive as the sun. The exact number doesn't matter. It might be half a solar mass. And we'll talk about that in terms of, you know, how many solar radii, how many solar masses, how many solar luminosities. And that's really how we normally talk about these in terms of other stars. Now again, the one thing I did mention the last time we looked at, the rotation period is different. And we'll see that this actually has a big effect on the sun. How fast it rotates at the equator is 11 days faster than it rotates at the poles. So it's not like the Earth where everything rotates in 23 hours and 56 minutes no matter where you are on the Earth. You know, if you're standing next to the pole, it still goes around, takes 23 hours and 56 minutes to go around once. Whereas on the sun, it doesn't. The sun is not a solid body. So it can actually rotate much faster at the equator, again, by 11 days faster. So every time the equator rotates, you know, three times, the pole has rotated about two. So it really will distort anything on there. If it was a solid surface, it would completely distort the surface very, very quickly. All right. Interior of the sun. Again, this is not a scale image. If you look at the numbers there, everything looks like it's about the same size. They're not. You've got to look at the actual sizes there. The core is about 200,000 kilometers. There's a radiation zone and a convection zone where energy is transported out. Here's where the energy is being produced, deep down in the center. It then is transported out by radiation or by convection. Again, those are very large chunks of the sun, 200, 300, 200,000 kilometers. You're talking about 700,000 kilometers from the center of the core to the outer part of the convection zone. The outer layers, which aren't to scale, they'd be paper thin to this scale. The photosphere is what we see. That's the part of the sun we actually see. When you look at the sun, don't stare at it for too long, but when you catch that glimpse of the sun, you're seeing the photosphere of it. That's the sphere of light, photosphere, and about 500 kilometers in thickness. So 200,000 kilometers, 500 kilometers, not even beginning to be to scale. The chromosphere, a little bit larger, a little bit higher above the photosphere. Chromosphere is the sphere of color. Actually looks a deep red when we observe it. That's about three times thicker than the photosphere. 
and up above it. So we're getting out into the atmosphere of the sun. So when we talk about surface of the sun, we really call that, that's the photosphere is what we call the surface. It's not a surface like you have a surface to the earth. It's where the light is primarily coming from. But it's not a solid surface. It's not all the same exact distance. There's a variation in it in terms of exactly where it, where it is. So it's not a solid surface. You can't go land. If you're going to go land on the sun, well, first of all, you're not going to get close enough because it's going to over. Heat's going to overwhelm you real quick. When you start getting up there, you know, it's, it's almost 6,000 6, degrees. You know, it's very, very, very hot at the, sur at the surface of the sun. But there'd be no place, even if you had something that could stand that, there'd be no place to land. You'd sink into the gases of the photosphere, just like you went through the outer atmosphere. And you'd continually go down. And as you go further down, the temperature goes up and up and up and up, peaking at about 15 million at the core. So makes that 6,000 know, seem like a nice cold winter day compared to 15 million. Either way, you're going to be vaporized. Luminosity. And again, we'll look at this in terms of stars. You know, how bright is a star? We'll use luminosities in terms of solar luminosity. You can calculate it. You can figure out how much, how much sun energy the sun is putting out. We collect only a teeny tiny portion of that. If you put the sun and then the earth to scale out here, you're only collecting that little tiny bit of solar energy that happens to fall on the earth's surface. The sun is putting that same amount of energy out in every single direction. So, most of it, the vast majority of it, misses the Earth. We don't come close to getting you know, even a, we don't even get a tiny, we get a very teeny tiny fraction of it. The actual number was about 4 times 10 to the 26 watts. As I said, you don't really need to know that specific number. But to put it in perspective, that's the equivalent of about 10 billion 1 megaton bombs per second. So 10 billion nuclear warheads being detonated every second accounts for the total energy of the output of the sun every single second. So you've got to do it now, you've got to do it 10 billion more, 10 billion more every single second. There's a lot of energy being, being produced there. And we can measure that, again, just based on that little tiny bit that hits the Earth, we can then figure out, okay, so much is hitting here. Well, what's the whole surface area of a sphere? If you could imagine a sphere around the sun at the distance of the Earth, how much energy would there be there? And that's where this total luminosity comes from. But we'll use that as a comparison when we look at other stars. And we'll say that other stars you know, have half the solar luminosity. So a star that's much fainter than the sun. You'll have other stars that might have 10 times the solar luminosity. So you know, 100 billion nuclear bombs per second. And there's stars that are even more, that are 100 or 1,000 times the luminosity of the sun. So there are stars that are putting out even more energy than the sun every second. So a lot of energy being produced all being produced by the nuclear reactions in the core and slowly working its way out to the surface. Mathematical models. Well, we can be able to use this. We got a set of equations that we can use, that astronomers use, that can actually tell you everything you need to know about the sun. You solve this set of four equations and you can tell exactly, based on exactly what the temperature and the pressures are at the center and what they are there and you can actually figure out you know, what's the temperature like as you go out through the sun. The sun is in what we call equilibrium. It means it's not really changing right now. So there's no net forces on it. It's staying the same size. Gravity wants to pull it down. Gravity is trying to pull it down. Desperately wants to pull it down to a point. Gravity wants to crush everything down to a point until something stops it. 
There has to be some force working against gravity that will stop that. And what it is here is it's the pressure created by all those, essentially, though, remember those 10 billion nuclear warheads every second? That's essentially what's happening with the nuclear fusion down at the core of the sun. It's producing a tremendous amount of pressure. And that amount of pressure exactly balances the gravity pulling it down. So gravity's trying to crush it down to a point. The pressure from the inside is trying to, put, trying to tear the sun apart. The two are exactly in balance, and it keeps the sun like that, and will keep it like that for billions of years. It's been in stability for about 5 billion years now. It will stay there for about another 5 billion years. There's that much hydrogen in its core that you can produce enough energy, again, 10 billion nuclear warheads every second, for 10 billion years. It's a lot of energy that's being produced and exactly balanced, keeping the sun stable. If one of these were out of balance, then the sun is either going to grow or shrink. If, it's, if the sun doesn't produce enough energy, the pressure isn't quite enough, then gravity is going to start winning and gravity is going to pull the sun down and contract it. If you produce too much energy, the pressure is greater and the pressure starts to expand the sun. In order to keep it perfect, the sun has to be perfectly balanced like that. Otherwise, we'd undergo constant swings of brightness, heat. You know, if the sun has been very stable for 5 billion years, because otherwise the temperatures on Earth would have changed significantly. A little tiny change in the temperature, in the, in the size of the sun or in the energy production, would make a very big change on what we see here on Earth. Now you can also imagine if you were to turn one of these off, if you were to turn gravity off, what would happen to the sun if you all of a sudden got rid of these blue arrows? All the blue arrows of gravity are gone. What's the sun going to do? going to explode. Got all that energy there in the center that's producing. There's no gravity holding it in and keeping it there. The sun would actually tear itself apart. If you stopped energy production in the sun, you get, all, get rid of all the red arrows now. The opposite, right? All of a sudden all you got is gravity and boom, black hole. Condense it all down to a point, all the matter down to a point, crush it all together. The two together keep themselves perfectly balanced and fortunately for us will last for many billions of years and keep the, keep the sunlight coming. Now I mentioned those equations. You don't need to know them, but I put them up there for you anyway. Just to, These are actually, it's a set of diff, partial differential equations. So I know they look like, probably look like gibberish unless you've taken some, you know, uh, differential calculus. But what it really is telling you, and again, you're not going to be tested on them, but just that you've seen something like this. This is the pressure at every point in the sun. So it's telling you about the pressure at each radius. It's telling you about the mass at each radius in the sun. How much mass is there inside that? What's the temperature like? What's the luminosity like? So if I know everything to go into these equations, I can then make a model of the sun that says, you know, here's what the pressure is at the center, here's what the mass of the sun is, here's what the temperature is like as you go out through the sun, here's what the luminosity is like. And you can go through and, so and solve those. Again, you're not going to see them again, I'm just putting them up there for you to have, have, seen them, have seen them once, I'm not testing you on them. Final exam, solve them, right? No! Could be done, but not, not, not what we're going to do for this class. But you can solve the equations and you can then determine how the sun is changing as you go from the interior to the exterior based on things like the density of the sun and the temperature, you know, what the temperature is, what the, 
different, there are a bunch of different constants in here, but there's temperatures, there's temperatures, there's different spots, different densities that tell you exactly how the sun will change as you go from the inner layers to the outer. So, again, I just like to put them up there, scare you a little bit, right? You're not going to have to see them again, unless you really want to. Now, how do we determine the interior of the sun? How do we determine anything about the interior of the sun? We can't experiment on it. We can't go send a spacecraft in there to look at it. And it's quite similar, in a way, to how we try to understand the Earth. You know, we can't dig down very far in the Earth. We can dig down a little bit. You know, little tiny scrap of piece of paper over the surface of the sphere. We can dig down that little teeny bit, you know, a couple miles or so. But when you're talking thousands of miles to the core, we're not, we're not even scratching the surface of the Earth. But we can, we can understand something about the interior of the Earth by studying the seismic waves. So when an earthquake occurs, it causes the Earth to vibrate. And we can use how those vibrations travel through the Earth to determine what it's, what it's made up of, what it's like inside, even though we can't actually get down there to the core to study it. Well, the sun vibrates in similar ways. We can look at that. We can look at details in the spectral lines. And we can see that there's parts that are blue shifted and red shifted. And we can look at these over time. And we can use them to work backwards and kind of map out what must the sun be like? How dense must it be in the, in the center? How, what the temperatures have to be like? In order to produce the vibrations that we see. And it's a continuous process. Look at, all the, look at all the things that are changing and try to figure out what is the sun like? How are these things bouncing? Where are they bouncing? Where are they coming through? And how does this explain the exact pattern? So that's sort of one of our ways of how we understand the sun and how it works deep inside is by looking at, again, all we can see is the surface. I can't go look down at the core of the sun. I can't go see all those nuclear reactions going on there, producing more energy than we can possibly imagine. But we still cannot see it. Not directly. It slowly works its way out. But we can't see it directly. But this is one of the ways that we can sort of use to determine what is the solar interior. What is it like inside the sun? So here's an example as to how it changes. Density of the sun. This is our sort of our standard model, how the density and the temperatures change. Temperatures peak up here at around 15 million degrees when you get down to the core. And as you go all the way out, Temperature goes down to about zero, right? Compared to 15 million degrees, 6,000 degrees is zero. No, it isn't to us because 6,000 degrees sounds incredibly hot. But to scale, if you're just looking at them there, it's essentially zero. Yeah, you're at 6,000 degrees. You're a tiny fraction up above that line. But essentially, as you get to the surface, it cools off very, very quickly compared to the high, high temperature you had inside. The density, where is all the material in the sun? is all highly concentrated to the center. The density is essentially nothing. It's just a gas. Even when you get you know, almost halfway out of the sun, the density is almost nothing. It's all very densely concentrated at that core. And in fact, the density in the core, the numbers on the left, if you put water on there, water has a density of 1. The Earth has a density of about 5 overall, about 5.5. We're still way down here. You know, denser metals might be what, 10s and 10s and 11s maybe? You're still not even getting close. You have material that is packed so tightly, extremely dense. You've got it hundreds of times, 100, 100, 150 times the density of water. 
So you've really smashed all that material. Now, much denser than any metals you have, much denser than any kind of rocky materials, denser than anything you're familiar with on Earth. And that's necessary. Those high temperatures, 15 million degrees, and high densities are necessary in order to sustain the fusion reactions that power the sun. So you need all that material crammed in a very tight space. You need it at very high temperatures, so it's still moving. Even though it's crammed that densely, it's still moving at incredibly fast speeds. And we can then smash hydrogen atoms together and create helium atoms. And we'll come back and look at that exactly how that works at the end of this chapter. But that's how the density, it's all constant. All the material is concentrated at the center of the sun. What we're seeing in the outer layers is really a very thin atmosphere, very, 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 very undense atmosphere. So very little material there. How do we transport by energy? Transport energy. Probably done this before, right? You have radiation, you have convection and conduction. So three methods of energy transport. Well, the sun uses two of those. The sun uses transports energy by radiation, right? You feel the heat. Feel the heat of something as the energy is transported directly to you. You also can transport by convection. A convection oven or a convective heating in your house where you heat the air and the hot air rises and cooler air sinks and it becomes a convective pattern to transport energy. Those are both used in the sun. The radiation zone is used close to the interior where the sun is relatively transparent. It goes through so the radiation travels not quite straight through as much as it looks there. It doesn't just stream straight out through the whole thing. It actually takes it quite a while because it's still very dense here. So that photon that's coming out is absorbed and then re-emitted and absorbed and re-emitted and it kind of has to work its way slowly out of the, of the core. It can take 100,000 years for energy that is being produced in the core right now to get to the surface for us to see it. So the energy that we're seeing from the sun was likely produced you know, 100,000 years ago at the core of the sun and it slowly worked its way out. So it doesn't just zoom straight out you know, at the speed of light and then a little convective zone and then it's out, it takes it a long time to get, to get out from the center of the sun. So when we see it, when we see the energy coming from the surface of the sun, it tells us what the sun is doing, what it was doing 100,000 years ago, not necessarily what it's doing today. The visible layer is what we call, when we look at the sun in detail, we see a pattern sort of like shown here. So this is looking at the surface of the sun in great detail and you get all these different patterns, brighter and darker areas. That's the very top of those convection cells. So that's sort of our evidence that convection is occurring on the sun. Again, we can't watch those convection cells. We can't see deep down there inside the sun. All we can see is the very surface area. So we, we can see brighter areas, hotter areas where hot material wells up from the interior of the sun, releases its energy, cools off, and then sinks back down. So all of these cells are something like is shown in here. If you look at it from the side, material coming up in the brighter areas, hotter, and then sinking down in the darker areas. And that pattern, again, these are very big cells. This is not very tiny. There is the scale. You're talking about things that are thousands of kilometers across. So 3,000 miles. You're talking about things that are the size of the United States. These are. No, they're not just little tiny convection cells. You're talking about monster-sized convection cells that would you know, fit across a good chunk, good chunk of the country. But that's sort of our evidence. That's how we see that granulation. That's how we see granulation is how we know that convection is occurring in the sun. 
If it were still being transported by radiation, you'd get a much smoother surface. You wouldn't see these convective cells if that were not happening right at the surface. How do we know what the sun's made up of? Well, we can look at it, but we can only tell you what it's made up of in the outer layers. Now we did the spectroscopy lab. We looked at a bunch of different, bless you, looked at a bunch of different uh, elements here. The sun, of course, I showed you that spectrum a while back, was much more complicated. This is an example of it. And we look here in the visible part of the spectrum and you can see hydrogen, there's helium, there's hydrogen, there's sodium, more hydrogen, mercury, iron, calcium, different elements that we see in the sun and of course just about anything else you can imagine. Everything is there in at least some quantity. Now that really only tells us what is in the outer layers of the sun. It doesn't tell us what's in the core. We can't measure that directly. Now I can't get a spectrum of the core of the sun and say, oh I see evidence of hydrogen, I see evidence of helium. We can only interpret that what we see on the outer layers of the sun is probably and reasonably the same sort of stuff that makes up the interior. But you can't measure that directly. Another good evidence for what the inner part of the sun is made up of is that it's producing energy down there. Only way to get this kind of energy, the amount of energy that we know the sun has to be producing, is by fusing hydrogen to helium. So it's got to have a, lot, a heck of a lot of hydrogen down there in the core. But really, all we can measure directly is what is in the outer layers. What is in the chromosphere? What is in the photosphere? Those are the parts of the sun we actually see. And when we measure them, we find things like iron. We find things like calcium, um, mercury, any other element. You know, any element on the periodic table, you can look, except for the couple that are unstable. Any of the other ones there, you can see. You know, you'll find sodium, you'll find magnesium, you'll find aluminum, you'll find silicon. All of it is actually present there in the sun and is likely present throughout. But most of what the sun is made up of is almost completely hydrogen and helium. If you take a random atom out of the sun, you've got about a 90% chance that it's, it's hydrogen. You've got about a 10% chance that it's helium. That's 100, we're done, right? Well, if you round them off, that's just because you're rounding them off, but there's probably that point zero 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 one chance that it's something else. So most of the sun is made up almost completely of hydrogen and helium doesn't mean there's not a lot of calcium there, not a lot of mercury, not a lot of anything else, but it's compared to the hydrogen very, very little percentage-wise. Now, out, further out in the atmosphere, that's what we see at the inner layers. The next outer layer is what we call the chromosphere, the sphere of color. You can't really see. You can't see it directly except during an eclipse. So during an eclipse, this moon will block out the photosphere of the sun and allow you to see the edges around it. It's always there. The chromosphere is always glowing. It's just not always visible because the photosphere is so much brighter. So much more energy coming from the photosphere that's now blocked off that you can't see this except during an eclipse. So when it covers the photosphere and the moon has covered that completely, the sun won't be, completely, it won't be completely black. There'll still be this glow around the moon, which has nothing to do with a lunar at, no lunar atmosphere, nothing else bending the light, as we've talked about with the Earth, perhaps, but has to do with that there's an atmosphere of the sun. The sun doesn't have that surface and then stop, the photosphere. It actually goes way out beyond that. Just like the Earth doesn't stop at the surface of the Earth, you've got the atmosphere of the Earth going up above that. You have the atmosphere of the sun, the chromosphere, and then the corona, much 
further out from the surface. So you can actually see that glow when you block out the intensity from the photosphere. But not something that you can normally see. You're not just normally going to be able to go look at it and you know, see the chromosphere. You've got to block out the brighter areas. Now we looked, I think we looked at some of these. These are some of the solar storms. When you look in the chromosphere, a lot of activity, a lot of energy is going on, is being produced there. Um, spicules are one of these. You almost see like the waviness pattern to the surface of the sun in it. And those are some of the little storms. Most of the, most of the solar activity and everything that we see in these is produced by the magnetic fields in the sun. So the magnetic field in the sun traps particles and gives us all these very interesting patterns. In this case, it's almost like a waviness. In some ways it looks almost like a, you know, a wheat field with all the different particles going, different uh, stalks going up in the, over the surface of the sun rather than over the surface of the earth in this case. But very different storms, almost all caused by the magnetic field of the sun. And what happens with that magnetic field, if you recall that Rotation was kind of odd. Remember the rotation? Is the equator rotates faster than the poles. It keeps twisting up the magnetic field. The Earth's magnetic field doesn't twist quite so easily because it rotates like a big solid. But the Sun's magnetic field, again, every three times the equator rotates once, the poles have only rotated twice. So after three every three months, the equator has lapped the poles. And you can imagine those magnetic field lines that are going through there are getting twisted up at the same time. And they get twisted and tangled, and when they burst through, they actually cause a lot of this activity that we see in the sun. Some areas will get hotter, some areas will get cooler, depending on exactly what's going on there. And I think, yep, the corona. Okay. Then as we go a little further out, if we block out not just the photosphere, but if we've got a little bit better eclipse that is blocking out both the photosphere and the chromosphere, then you see the outermost atmosphere of the sun, the solar corona. Very diffuse, not a lot of particles there. Extremely hot. The center of the sun was about 15 million degrees. Went down to about 6,000 at the surface. You think you're getting further away from the sun, it's going to get colder and colder. Nope, it's going to get hotter again. Just like the upper atmosphere of the earth will actually cool off and then heats up again, the outer atmosphere of the sun actually heats up. And the corona can actually be 1, 2 million degrees. Very hot, but no energy being produced there because it's not, not dense enough. The density of it wouldn't even be close to the atmosphere on the Earth. It would be you know, a particle here, a particle there. They're scattered over, but it's very, very low density, so the particles aren't close enough to be able to combine, even though the temperatures are pretty hot when you're talking a million degrees. But in order to see that outer atmosphere, again, you have to block out not just the photosphere, but you've got to block out the chromosphere. It's much more diffuse, much fainter, and it doesn't glow nearly as bright as you would expect based on its temperature just because there isn't that much material there. So here's the temperatures as we go up. Again, 15 million degrees deep down in the core, way off over there someplace, up to about 6,000 at the surface. The chromosphere cools off a little bit. When you get into the chromosphere, it still continues to cool. You know what you might expect, getting further and further away from the sun. But as you get further out, it starts to shoot up again. So it goes from 4,000 to six, back up to 6,000 degrees and then you know, leaves that in the dust. Shoots up there at a little over a million degrees. Much hotter, 
Why does it get so much hotter there? There's not a lot of material there. And what it is, is that probably is happening is that magnetic field that's whipping around the sun is accelerating these particles and making them move quickly. What is temperature? Temperature is really just how fast particles are moving. So, really just telling you how fast they're moving. That's all a temperature is. If it's hotter in this room, that means the particles in the atmosphere are moving quicker. If it's colder, then the particles are moving a little bit slower. That's really all temperature is measuring is the motion of the particles. That's what the temperature is a measure of. So that means that these particles up in the corona are moving very, very fast. So they're zipping around very, very quickly. That gives it the extremely high temperatures. They're moving much faster there than they are down in the, in the, in the chromosphere or the photosphere which are still moving a lot faster than anything we're used to on Earth. So really that's all the temperature is measuring. It's not saying that it's real hot and if you take something out there, you're gonna, you know, if you could go out there and stick your hand out, you're not going to feel the heat from the corona. There's not enough particles there to, to heat you up. But the ones that are there are moving extremely quickly. Now yeah, if you were in the corona and you put your hand out, you're going to feel the heat from the sun. But you're not going to feel the heat from the corona itself. You're not going to be able to notice. It just wouldn't be hot enough to be able to, it wouldn't be enough particles to actually move anything to actually for you to feel the warmth. Sunspots. One of the things you see on the sun, one of the things Galileo discovered when he looked at the sun was that there are some parts of the sun that are darker than, darker than the rest of the surface. An example of a sunspot here, taken in the visible part of the spectrum up at the top, shows that there's a much darker area. Why is it dark? Because it's much cooler. So the surface of the sun is about 6,000 degrees. The sunspot, nice cool area, right? You want to go land. It's about 4,500 degrees. Still don't want to go anywhere near it. Still much hotter than anything you're used to here on Earth. But 4,500 degrees, a significantly cooler, means it's not going to be putting out as much visible light and it's not going to look as bright as the surrounding sun. Now if you could take that sunspot magically, lift it out and put it out there in space, it would glow bright. It's not that it's dark, it's just that it's dark compared to the surface of the sun. It would glow a nice red, reddish orange if you could take it out into space. If you could look at just that sunspot, it would be nice and bright. It is still very hot, it's just comparative to this, compared to the rest of the sun, it's 1,000, 1,500 degrees cooler. Now you'll see the darker areas in it, the umbra, name sound familiar, right? Talked about that a while back. In a different, a different aspect, think about shadows. You had the umbra of the moon shadow on the earth and you had the penumbra. We talk about the same thing in terms of sunspots. The umbra is the dark, dense part of the sunspot. Has nothing to do with the shadow in this case. The penumbra is that lighter area around it. Now sunspots are likely caused, again, by that twisting magnetic field. The magnetic field gets tangled up and twisted and starts to bulge out of the sun in odd places. So you actually get magnetic field lines poking through the sun and that serves to cool off that part of the sun where they're, where they're kind of emerging. Where they're emerging and then re-entering, it serves to cool that off a little bit, keep it a little bit cooler than the rest of the sun and shows up as sunspots. But if, so even though they're darker, they're actually the area where, suns, where, where 
most of the solar activity is going on. So that's where actually all the activity on the sun, all the interesting things are happening in terms of things like solar flares, the coronal mass ejections, those are all associated with sunspots. So even though they're darker than the rest of the sun, look like they might be a little milder, they're really where all the interesting activity is going on. Sunspots can come and go. They don't stay there forever. They don't stay there like the great red spot on Jupiter, which stays, which has been there for hundreds of years, or even the dark spot on, you know, Neptune that was there for a decade. They come and go relatively quickly, not just a few days. Sometimes they're there for a week or a month. You might be able to watch a sunspot as the sun rotates, disappear off one side as it rotates around, and you might still be able to see it as it comes back around. But they typically come and go with the periods of a few weeks to a month. They do come in pairs. So you always have a north sunspot and a south sunspot when they, when they occur. You have the magnetic field lines coming out of the north, out, out of the south, into the north, out of the south, into the north. So they always come in pairs. And it's the, if you think about it, it's the magnetic field lines bursting through the sun. So you have some coming out. That's one. While they come out, they've got to go back in when they come back into the sun. So it's really that magnetic field that usually on the Earth, if you look at the Earth's magnetic field and you think about you know, a little magnet, magnetic field, you get this nice smooth one. Looks something like that. But when you twist that and you turn it and you rotate this part faster than you're rotating the part up here, that magnetic field gets twisted and tangled. Again, one rotation every couple of months. You get the middle part getting ahead. It twists it all up. At some point, those magnetic field lines get so tangled that they kind of pop and bulge through the surface. And that's why we tend to see them in cycles. We're coming up to a cycle now where we're going to be getting, we're getting more sunspots than we used to. For a while, there were very few sunspots. As the sun gets more and more tangled, they get more and more and more. And then eventually, something happens. This magnetic field snaps, reverses itself, and starts the whole cycle over again. Now the other thing you may notice in this image is that you have a north sunspot and a south sunspot, a north and a south. They're flipped in the southern hemisphere. So if you're, in the, if you're below the equator of the sun, it's then a south sunspot leading and a north sunspot behind it, behind it. So there's always a pair, but depending on whether you're near the north magnetic pole of the sun or the south magnetic pole of the sun, those will flip as well. And we can see, see some of this in some cases. The top is a sketch. The bottom is actually a picture taken in the ultraviolet of the edge of the sun. This is sort of the edge of the sun right here. And as you look up, you see a loop right around the sunspot. Sunspot group would be here and here. And you have this loop of material sort of trailing along those magnetic field lines. Now magnetic field lines themselves are invisible. You can't just go see them. but like you do with putting a magnet and putting iron filings over a magnet, you can see where they are. Here you're putting plasma from the sun is following those magnetic field lines. It glows. We can see that. And it follows right along those magnetic field lines, sort of sh showing off where they are. Here's where those magnetic field lines are. And we can actually see what we think theoretically is going on here. Here we can actually see it happening because we can trace out that exact magnetic field line. Now. I've Gave you a little bit of an explanation before. This is kind of a little bit better diagram. And what's happening to the sun's magnetic field. You have that nice smooth magnetic field that starts out. 
but then you slowly twist it because the equator is rotating faster than the pole, so those, those magnetic field lines get dragged ahead and further ahead, and after a couple times they're wrapped well ahead and they start to kink up inside and burst out. So you'll actually get north and south poles, little bits of the magnetic field lines will actually start to pop out and you'll see things like the solar prominences that we saw at the edge of the sun on the other one where the particles are following along that magnetic field line that's no longer nice and smooth and following right through the sun but where it's gotten all twisted up and actually bulged out through the center. So the sun rotating drags those magnetic field lines around. Normally that wouldn't make a big difference. But the thing is that it's rotating so much faster at the equator than it is at the poles. So you sort of distort the entire image of the magnetic field of the sun that causes all of the solar activity that we're going to look at here. Sunspot cycle. We get sunspots in a very right, relatively regular pattern, meaning that you'll get more sunspots at some times and fewer sunspots. So if you look here over the last 100 years or so, we had a peak around 2000, 2001. You had a peak right around 1990. Had a peak here, what, early 80s? Peak in the 70s, peak here late 50s, early 60s, peak in the 40s. I mean, about every 11 years, not exactly. I couldn't say it's exactly 11, but it's pretty close if you average it out over time. Sometimes it's a little bit less, sometimes it's a little bit more. But the num sunspot numbers will rise. So you'll get very few sunspots, then you'll get a lot more for a while, then they'll die down again, and it starts over. Get more and less. But there is a very regular pattern that's been looked at since we've been able to watch since the time of Galileo that we've been able to watch sunspots, since we've known about sunspots. We could see how many there are. It's not always exactly the same. It's not a nice, perfect, smooth curve. There's a lot more going on in the sun than simply what I've given to you. There's a lot more there, and as you notice, they're not always, you know, here were three in a row that were pretty much about the same, but the one before them didn't, wasn't near as big of a peak. And these ones back in the early part of last century, in the early 1900s, were a lot lower. So solar activity was a lot less here, a lot more here in the 50s, 60s, a lot more here the last few years. What's the next one going to be like, which we're coming up to? We can tell you when it's over. I can't tell you whether it's going to be a big one or a small one. As you see, some of these things get real big for a short time and then drop down. There's no way to predict. I can't tell you what the next one is exactly going to be like. There's so many variables going into the sun and to how it's producing these that we really can't tell you what's coming, what's coming next. We know that a peak is coming and that the activity is getting more, but we don't know if it's going to you know, level off real low and then drop off or if it's going to shoot up and be a very, very lot of activity. Again, we'll be able to tell you a few years after it's done. We can go back and look and say, well, there's what, there's what it was. Now the other diagram is sort of zooming in on one of these and is looking at where you're seeing the sunspots. And what happens is as the sunspot cycle starts here in the mid-1930s to mid-1940s, the sunspots started out when the cycle started. Where did they form on the sun? And they sort of form this pattern where at the minimum when they start, they're much further away from the equator. You know, maybe 30, 40 degrees away from the equator. So not quite halfway up the sun. They don't get close to the poles. 
And then as, as you go through the cycle, as it reaches its peak and then starts to fade off, they get closer and closer to the equator. So you see the little blue lines there are kind of showing you that it starts off very far away, bringing it down very close to the equator as it occurs. That's what we call the, it's called the butterfly diagram. If you look at it, turn your head sideways and try to look at it, you see the little butterfly, right? The wings going out that way. If you're looking at the head going up to that, to the left there and tail off to the right. It's called the butterfly, butterfly diagram just because of the pattern of how it looks. And that really is showing where the sunspots are occurring. So as you go through the sunspot cycle, not only does the number of sunspots change, but where they are on the sun changes. So not only do you get more sunspots here as you've gone through the cycle, but as you get towards the end of the cycle, there's also sunspots are closer to the equator. You don't find many very far away from the equator as you reach the edge of the cycle. Now really, now that I just told you there's an 11 year sunspot cycle, the real cycle of the sun is actually 22 years. Just got to confuse you, right? Because what happens is that the sun goes from this in one sunspot cycle, when the magnetic field gets all so tangled up and it finally resets itself, it resets itself, but it flips. So the north, no, not that the sun flips, the sun stays exactly the same. The north pole of the sun and the south pole of the sun stay the same. The magnetic poles flipped. So this is the north magnetic pole, south magnetic pole. But the magnetic poles actually flip. So to get back to where you were again, this is one sunspot cycle, then the next sunspot cycle everything's flipped. Here you're back to north magnetic pole and south magnetic pole. So the magnetic cycle, the complete cycle of the sun, is really 22 years long. In that time it'll go through two maxima of sunspots and two minima of sunspots, but when you get back to this one, now you have the north sunspots leading again as I showed you in the previous diagrams. You'd have north and south sunspots. What you're flipping, again, you're not turning the sun over. The sun is still rotating just like it was, but the magnetic field itself has flipped. This happens on the earth as well. Magnetic field of the earth will flip. Not on a regular basis of every 22 years or every 11 years as it does in the sun, but over many thousands of years, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, we've seen that the earth's magnetic pole has flipped. So that there were times where you could take a compass and it would point you towards the south instead of towards the north. Because the south magnetic pole would have been down towards the south pole. Yeah. As far as I know, it's a pretty sudden switch from what they can see. They can measure it in the seabeds as to how the different um, minerals get aligned. And it's a rather sudden shift. So all of a sudden, you know, and, and rather sudden could mean, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, not like now, boom. You know, got to qualify what sudden means in science when you're talking about geology or astronomy. But it doesn't take it 10,000 years to change. It might take it 100 years to change. <laughs> But it's a relatively fast, fast switch. And that would mean that you know, if it switches, then all of a sudden all compasses are going, to point, are going to point south instead. Now the other thing, this graph goes back a little bit further. So this is what we looked at here. Where you had those three that were regular. You had a couple big ones here in the mid-1900s, mid lower ones. And you can see that there are some times when it's really extreme sunspots. Some where it's very low. Here was a period late 18, early 1900s where it was relatively low number of sunspots, even at the maximum. 
early 1800s, even worse. And back here, you know, here's Galileo, just after 1600, that was the first observations of sunspots. So this area in here, there was a stretch, which we call the Maunder Minimum, when there were very few sunspots. So we didn't really see hardly any sunspots for a great period of time there. Now, if Galileo had been observing then, he might not have seen sunspots. And it was only a matter of a few decades, decades after, after him. So he might not have had the discovery of sunspots at that point. But it was actually an interesting time in that the sun was very inactive, didn't have a lot of sunspots, so very little solar flare activity, coronal mass ejections, none of that kind of stuff going on, not a lot of that going on. And it was also a rather cool time on the surface of the Earth. Not cool as in cool, but cool as in cold. Rather, rather cold. It was actually almost a mini ice age in parts of Europe. It was very cold for this stretch of you know, 40, 50 years when the sun was not as active as it normally, normally was. So there is some relation between how active the sun is and the temperatures on the Earth as well. Because when there's very little sunspot activity, you tend to get, tended to get much cooler weather that occurred back here, again, in the late, late 16 to early, 17, early 1700s. Let me see what's... How do they, oh, uh, sorry, go ahead. How do they know that it was less activity in that time and they just couldn't see it as well because of the technology of science? No, they knew, they knew you could see, you still had sunspots. You could still see the sunspots through the telescope. So you could, all this is, what this is, is called a sunspot number. And it's sort of a count, not directly of how many sunspots, but the average monthly number of sunspots that you'd see. So you'd see, you know, 50 sunspots in, in the month. So we could see them here. Technology hadn't gone down here. Technology would have been improving. We had very small, we were getting better and better telescopes. But just nothing was able to, not, no, no sunspots were seen. Not none. Yeah, there were a few occasionally. But much lower level, no big spikes. You know, astronomers studying it here wouldn't really have known anything about the sunspot cycle, right? There's no regular pattern that you could discern there. It's like, okay, sometimes there's more and sometimes there's less. It took many, many decades of seeing a lot of sunspots in order to be able to get the patterns. So we're about done. I'm going to go ahead and stop there, and we should be able to finish up the sun on Friday and go on to a lab. Yay! Homework is due Friday as well, so don't forget that. And have a good afternoon.